I don't know why I need to preach a sermon. We just go to lunch. That said it all. That said it all. They, they did a great job. I'm so proud of those guys. If you, uh, if you want to meet those guys, you wanna, they've been a part of our church for a long time. If you want to hear more about their music or anything like that, they'll be hanging out in the lobby uh, with me after the, after the service. Just go say hi to them. They'd love to talk to you. But I guess we will do a sermon here, all right? If you remember, we left off last week in Exodus 16. We left off, they've, they've moved through the, through the Red Sea. They were in the desert. And as soon as they hit the desert, they start whining and complaining that they have no food, have no water, and they have this good desire. But what happens when good desires get out of control is we get angry and we get anxious and we run away from God. And that's what happened with the Hebrew people. And I'd, I'd like to tell you that after that moment, everything got better. To, but, but to be honest with you, everything really got worse. You may be in a, been expecting this week to be the one where Scott like ties a nice ribbon on this series and they march triumphantly into the promised land and it's all good and roses, but that's not where we're going today. In fact, for a bunch of those slaves who wandered into the desert, uh, they didn't get to go to the promised land at all. A whole generation of them would actually die in the desert. We'll talk more about why in a little bit. But not long after that little episode where they complained about food and water, they, about three months after they cross over the Red Sea, they come to this mountain that's later became a very famously known mountain called Mount Sinai. And they set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses climbs to the top of this mountain literally to meet with God in a totally unprecedented way that nobody ever had before in a way really nobody ever has since. He, he has this conversation basically with God on top of this mountain and God gives Moses a gift for his people that became later known as the law rules to live by for his people and I got to be honest with you the Old Testament law and those rules get a bad rap because probably because of people like me who are rule breakers by nature we just perceive rules to be a very bad thing but let's think about what this was for a second okay you got millions of people who've known nothing but slavery and now they're living in community with one another for the first time they don't have the shadow of slavery over them where the only rule was simply this obey your master or die and now they're free and as we've said before freedom is better but freedom is harder freedom is better but freedom is more complex see slavery is very very simple and I think it would be safe to say that these people probably have no idea how to function with one another on many levels because they've never had freedom before. They've literally been institutionalized. So God gives them rules for just about everything. It's more than just the Ten Commandments. There's like 600 of those things. And it, he also gives them a way to organize themselves which is really, really important as they're moving in the desert with all these neighboring countries that are very brutal and oppressive, they would be very vulnerable if they're not organized to be picked off and taken back into slavery or just slaughtered out in the desert by any one of them. And so Moses and God spend 40 days meeting together on the top of this mountain. And rule number one goes like this, don't worship anyone or anything but me. God says, don't seek or try to find your life, your joy, your satisfaction in anyone or anything but me. Don't bow down, don't worship anyone or anything but me. And then God adds this really strange statement to the end of that. He says this, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And that statement b bothers a lot of people. In fact, it, maybe you've heard Oprah's story. It really bothered her so much so that she was sitting in church one day and she heard the pastor say that God was a jealous God. And she pinpoints that moment as the moment that she started to walk away from Christianity because Oprah heard him say, God is jealous of you. And that's not true. God is jealous for you. And there's a fundamental difference and that's what the Bible teaches. God is jealous for you in the same way that I'm jealous for my children. 
You ever been in a, like a big crowd and a little kid gets kind of separated from their parents and they instinctively reach up and grab a hand only to find out that it's not mommy or it's not daddy? Then they panic. You ever seen that happen? I remember Landry doing that once when she was really little. We were at the park and she did that and she looked up at this guy and kind of panicked and me and this guy kind of laughed about it and everything and then she came over to me. But can you imagine in that moment me looking at him and going, well, why don't you take her home? She thinks you're her daddy. Can you imagine me allowing somebody else to usurp my role as father in Landry's life? No, nobody gets to be Landry's dad but me. Nobody gets to take that role but me. All God is saying here is simply this. Don't willingly take the hand of another and expect to get a father's love in return. It's not going to happen. And so Moses and God are meeting together for 40 days and the people at the base of the mountain start to get really, really anxious They're wondering if Moses is ever going to come back. And so that's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. It's in your programs. It'll be on the screens. Look at this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. You see, the disease that we saw the symptoms of last week when they whined and complained for food and water has now turned into a full-blown outbreak this week when they literally make something out of gold and put it in the place of God and worship it as God. And that sounds dumb to us, doesn't it? Let's just be honest. I mean, that sounds prehistoric. That sounds barbaric. That sounds foolish. In the New Testament, the book, the, the book of Romans, Paul wrote, and he was kind of reflecting on, on this story and some others, but probably primarily this story when he says this, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for Im- the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And it's easy to make jokes about it, right? So like when you're whittling an idol out of a piece of wood, how do you know which end is for worshiping and which end is for throwing in the fire? It doesn't make any sense to worship something that you and I can create. And we know that intuitively, but the truth of the matter is we make the same exchange. We do the same thing. They made a golden calf, but what was that really underneath it all was a manifestation of something deeper. Moses had been gone for like 40 days. And what was Moses to them? He was their mediator. He was their connection to God. And so they felt like that mediator, that connection to God was being taken away from them. And so they created something to make them feel connected to something bigger and stronger and more significant than themselves. And they bowed down and worshiped it. And we're always worshiping all the time. We can't help it. We're giving our lives to something with every moment of every day. And you can always tell what you worship based on what you sacrifice your time, your money, and your energy to. You could sum it up by saying what you sacrifice your life to. And based on that definition, we worship a lot of things, don't we? 
Some of us, we worship these metal contraptions with four tires on them based on the amount of money and time and energy and affection that we sacrifice to them. Some of us, we, we've sacrificed our own children on the altar of climbing a corporate ladder. Some of us have sacrificed our marriages on the altar of pornography. Some of us have sacrificed our lives at a temple known as the local bar. See, if you want to know what your gods are, all you have to do is look at this list. Anything more important to you than God is your God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, meet your God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give, or give you is your God. Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That's your God. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, and your identity. See, you can always tell what you worship because when it's threatened, oh man, the gloves come off. We fight for it when it's threatened. Some of you are fighting for it right now. Like in your, in your brain right now, you're arguing with me. You are, you are going, Scott, you don't get it. You don't understand. Or Scott, that's not fair. Scott, that's a low blow. Whatever that is. But here's the truth. What the heart loves, the will chooses, the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, the mind inevitably will start to justify. And that's what's happening in some of our hearts and our minds right now. See, in a really strange way, the Hebrew people loved their slavery. They longed for home. They saw Egypt as their home. And there is this well-documented strange phenomenon known as the slave mentality. And it, it's happened in different cultures and different situations and different generations. But it, it goes like this. Sometimes slaves love their masters. In fact, they'll fight to defend their master. And many slaves that have been set free or have run away will often return back to the hands of their slave masters instead of living in freedom. Why? Because it's what we know. Even deeper than that, it's what we love. We actually start to believe that the thing that we're a slave to can take care of us can give us what we want, give us what we need, can numb the pain. And so we actually fight for the very thing that's destroying our lives. I've personally seen it with some people I love with alcoholism over and over again. When someone is deep in their addiction, the very mention of, of saying, do you think you should stop is met by extreme hostility. Why? Because that person's too stupid to know that this is what's destroying their life? No, because it's familiar. Familiarity breeds affection, and affection breeds devotion, which is just another word for worship. Life without it is more scary than life with it. And we do the same thing. And it went haywire for the Hebrew people, and it goes haywire for us. If you read the rest of the story, Moses comes down the mountain, and he sees what's going on. He goes into a fury, and he, he breaks the law. He throws the tablets down. He goes over and grabs this golden calf, and he grinds it down into a powder. He puts it in their water, and he makes them drink it as if to say, how foolish is this that we would worship something that I can destroy and that you can consume? And the people were out of control, so out of control that civil war broke out in the camp, and many of them died. See, when we put anyone or anything in the center of our lives other than God, there will be casualties. There will be fallout because that's precisely what we're signing up for when we stop trusting him, when we stop following him, and when we stop leaning on him. So shortly after that episode, Moses goes back to the top of the mountain to redo the whole law thing, and he's having this conversation with God. And look at this in Exodus 33, verse 12. 
Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You said I know you by name and you found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and, that, and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. I love verse 15. If you've got a pen, circle that or highlight it or something because it's Moses basically saying back to God, that's good, God. I'm glad you're going with us because if you don't go with us, we ain't going. We ain't taking another step in this desert sand if you're not going with us. See, these people, they've been set free. They're no longer living under the oppression of their old slave masters. They even have a constitution. They even know the land that they're supposed to go to now. That's been given to them. And now it looks like they have everything they need, don't they? And Moses says, no. No, we, we only have all we need in you, God. We're not content to walk in freedom without you. We're not doing this without you. We're not taking another step in this journey without you. Without you, we might as well be back in slavery. You've given us great gifts, Father. You've given us freedom and food and water, but none of it it's on its own is enough. Only you are enough. Only you are all we need. So can I ask us, you and me, can I ask us a really, really hard question? Would you be content to walk in freedom without God? Would you be content to walk in freedom without God? To walk in sobriety, to walk in health or wealth or fame or fortune in marriage, parenting, a great work situation. Would you be content to walk in any of those things without God? Moses emphatically says no, no. See, last week I talked about how so many of us buy into Jesus like some sort of magic pill that's going to make all the pain and, and suffering go away, make life be smooth sailing from this point on, just kind of like a late night infomercial going, oh, I desperately need that to fix this. And thank you for those of you that bought me those egg contraptions. That was helpful. I'm going to use them tomorrow, all right? But I think a lot of us, I think we're tempted to treat Jesus like a ticket to a movie or a ball game too. Meaning this, we use Jesus to get what we want. So we think Jesus might just be the path to a better marriage. So what happens when we get a better marriage? We don't need Jesus anymore. Why? Because we got what we wanted. We think Jesus might just be the path to getting out of this addiction. And so what happens when we get out of the addiction? We don't need Jesus anymore. Why? Because we got what we wanted. We think Jesus might just be our ticket to financial freedom, and so what happens when we get out of debt? We don't need Jesus anymore, because after all, we don't have a car payment now, right? We do the same thing with Jesus that we do with ticket stubs after a ball game or a concert. We can cast them aside because they serve their purpose. So you might say, I want tickets to the Rockies game. What you actually mean is I want to go to the Rockies game. We might say, I want Jesus. What we actually mean is I want fill in the blank. We treat Jesus like he's our ticket to treasure, but the truth is Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is not the means to the end. He is the end. Living in him is better despite our circumstances, whether they're good or they're bad, Jesus is better. That's what Moses is saying. We're not content to walk through life without you, God. We're not, we need you more than anyone or anything else. So if you aren't going, we ain't going. We're staying right here, staying with you. And I would love to tell you that the next day they walked triumphantly into the promised land, the walls came down and they conquered, but it didn't go down that way. 
A whole generation of them didn't get to enter the promised land, also known, it's referred to in the Bible as the place of rest. The book of Hebrews tells us that they didn't get to go in because of unbelief and disobedience. They didn't believe God, they didn't trust God. They got to the border of the promised land, they looked in, they sent some spies in, they reported back, oh, there's some big, fierce, mean dudes in that land. There's no way we can take this land. And God, I know you said we could, but we don't believe you. We don't trust you. And so they walk back into the desert and they wander around until that generation who didn't believe and who didn't trust died. And the next generation went into the promised land, went into the land of rest. Do you know where a lot of us stand today though? A lot of us stand on one side of the Red Sea or the other. Some of us, we're on this side of the Red Sea. We're back in Egypt. We're, we're still in slavery. We're still in those chains and they haven't been broken yet. Even though God is offering us freedom through his son named Jesus, we're, we're choosing to stay enslaved. Some of us though, we've been set free. We've, we've walked through the Red Sea. We're standing though now right smack dab in the middle of a desert. We've been set free, but we still struggle with some of those old tendencies, those old slave habits. And some say it this way, you can take the people out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of people. But I know where none of us stand today, and that's in the promised land. None of us stand there. We don't stand in the place of rest. There is a promised land. There is a place of rest that's yet to come. It's called heaven. And that's why I think that we can identify so well with these people who lived thousands of years ago on the other side of the planet because we can read their story and see them as they stand in the middle of the desert and go, you know what? I'm just like them. They're just like me been set free but we're not in the ultimate place of freedom and in this journey we're going to continue to struggle and fail which means we need hope and we don't need some kind of wishy-washy nebulous just random hope we need hope in a person so who or what do you put your hope in as we journey through this desert called life we put our hope in lots of things some of us put our hope in in trying to do more good stuff than bad stuff and we think if we can keep ourselves busy doing good stuff then that'll be enough some of us put our hope in attacking and killing all the problems and character flaws and sins and false gods and idols in our life and we spend enormous amounts of time in this kind of strange state of morbid introspection always trying to mine the depths of how terrible we are trying to fix it deal with it and end it some of us put our hope in appointing people in our life to be kind of a watchdog. To, so we go to them when we do something wrong, we tell them what we did, the, did wrong and they tell us not to do it again. In Christian circles, it's called accountability groups or accountability partners. Some of us put our hope in the next season of life or the next step in the journey and we just believe that when we take that step, all the problems will magically somehow go away. Best example I can give you is how many people think that their addiction to pornography will just magically go away the second they get married and then they find out that that taskmaster is way more brutal than that and doesn't give up that easily. I want you to notice all those things like, like doing good stuff and having somebody in your life and, and in the next season of life, all that, those are good things but if we put our hope in them, they cannot deliver. They can help, they can't save. None of those things are hope in God. None of them are hope in who God is. So back to our story. God confirms that he'll in fact go with Moses and his people and Moses is, is feeling pretty confident in this moment. He feels like he's on a roll. He's like, oh, you're going with us? All right, so I got another question for you. I got another request. Show me your glory. 
Show me the totality of who you are, how mighty and majestic and holy and awesome and and gracious and merciful and good and the list goes on. Show me who you are. Reveal all of yourself to me, God. And And God responds to Moses, Moses, bro, that's in the Hebrew, I promise. You, you can't handle that, man. Like, that's like asking to experience the full force and heat and energy of the sun. And now you're asking to experience the full force and heat and energy of the one who created the sun with a word. You can't handle that. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm gonna let you have a little glimpse. I'll let you have a little glimpse of my glory. And he pushes him back into the side of this mountain and says, get in between these rocks and I'm gonna cover you up. And, and the Lord literally passes by Moses and lets him catch a glimpse of his glory. And the Lord says, God says some things about himself as he's doing this in Exodus 34, verse six. Now look at this. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Now there's a lot there, isn't there? There's some things there that God says about himself that we need to accept and that we need to deal with. One of those is this. If we want to put our hope in God, we need to know the kind of God we're putting our hope in. And you can put your hope in God because he's compassionate. See, compassion is not feeling sorry for somebody. That's just feeling sorry for somebody. Compassion is when somebody else's pain moves from your head to your heart to your hands. In other words, when you see it, you perceive it, you feel it, and then you do something about it. And that's what God did for his people. He saw and he heard their suffering and their cries for help. He felt for them, and then he came down and delivered his people from slavery. And God's able to do the same thing for you. He doesn't see your suffering and just feel sorry for you. He's able to deliver you from whatever you're chained up to. Now, here's the thing. He might not do that in the way you want him to. He probably won't do it on your terms. He's going to do it on his terms. Put your hope in God because he's compassionate. And you can put your hope in God because he's gracious. The word gracious in the original Hebrew is like many Hebrew words meant to paint a picture. And the picture is this, of someone very, very strong helping someone very, very weak who's totally undeserving of that help. It's kind of like in the movies and stories we see and read where where the hero of the story reaches out to the villain of the story despite the fact that the villain has done so much to deserve death, he gets granted life by the hero. Sounds a lot like my story. Even though God has every right to condemn me, he offers me grace instead, grace that I'm totally undeserving of. Put your hope in God. You can put your hope in God because he's slow to anger. In other words, God doesn't fly off the handle and lose his temper like I do. On Friday night, I had been in uh, Arizona all week, which just so you know, is not a place God intended people to live, all right? That's, that's where like lizards and snakes and coyotes live, but not people, okay? And so I was there all week, teaching all week, uh, two times a day. And uh, at the end of the week, Allie and I, Allie was with me with my older two kids. And so we took uh, Eli and Landry to a water park in Phoenix. It's 110 degrees, and they were all talking about how nice and cool it was that day. Like, you people are idiots. You're crazy, all right? And so, uh, so we're there all day, and then we flew out late Friday night, and so we're just exhausted when we land at DIA. It was like 10.30 at night, something like that, and everything went smoothly leaving DIA. We got home right at midnight, and uh, we, we, get out of the, we get out of the van. It's my wife's van, not mine, all right? Just for the record, we get out of the van, 
And, and my wife goes to, to, to open the door in the garage into the house and, and she goes, Scott, you got your key? No. Don't you have yours? She's like, no. And I'm telling you, I just threw like a literal tantrum. All right. I like threw stuff. I taught my kids all kinds of words. You know, I mean, it was just a, it was a bad, bad moment. I flew off the handle and it was about 1 a.m. before I finally figured out like, okay, call my dad. He's got a spare key. He's got to drive up from Westminster. He finally came and let us in. Man, I just lost my temper in front of my whole family. And what this is saying is this, God doesn't do that. He's patient, slow to anger. God puts up with a lot, puts up with way more than you and I ever would. God's first response is typically grace, not anger, which is amazing considering how people, just people in general, me included, often just screw up and point fingers at God and blame him when we make mistakes. And yet God's patient. He doesn't kick people off his team. He doesn't trade his players. God is slow to anger, so put your hope in him. You can put your hope in God because he abounds in love and faithfulness. That simply yet profoundly means that God is consistent. He's faithful, he shows up, he's relentless. He, can, he constantly pursues us with his lavish and extravagant love. The way the ancient songwriters used to say it was this, his love endures forever, never runs out. His love is inexhaustible, his love is perfect. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. Nothing you can do to make God love you any less. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but God's love is different than your love. It's different than my love. There's limits to my love. There's limits to yours. Our love can run out and our love can give way to hate or just indifference. God's does not. So put your hope in him. Put your hope in God. And this is the tough one because God is just. He's just. God is committed to justice. That may be hard to swallow, but I don't think it's as hard to swallow as we make it out to be because at the end of the day, we wouldn't want to worship a God who wasn't just. Would we want to worship a God who didn't have a sense of right and wrong, who just kind of winked and nodded at the atrocities and the injustices we see in this world? A God who would ignore things like rape and abuse and genocide and child slavery? Of course not. We all have a keen sense of justice. You know how I know? Because I watched Facebook right after the Casey Anthony verdict came down. And I sat there going, huh, where'd all of our keen sense of justice come from all of a sudden? You know where it comes from? God. It comes from our Heavenly Father. But here's the thing about me, and I suspect it's probably true about a lot of us, is I want God's keen sense of justice to stop right there. Like, I want his sense of justice to stop with, like, all the really bad sins, stuff that, like, you know, those people do. I don't want his keen sense of justice to pick up on the things that I do wrong. And what I actually am hoping for is that God will grade on the curve because I can always find somebody who I'm better than, right? And we work ourselves right down until finally we're like, okay, well, you know, there's Hitler over there, better than him, right? Man, you know, that's not the way it works with God. The measuring stick is God and his goodness and his perfect standard. And the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we might not like any of that. We may even feel like it shouldn't be that way. But I don't know about you. I'm more interested in dealing with reality than what I wish for, aren't you? And this is what God says about himself from cover to cover. God is emphatic that he is just. And I find that to be a good thing. You know what I find to be an even better thing? One person says the apex of God's glory is his grace. In other words, 
The fact that God finds and provides a way for me, someone who has every right to be condemned, for me to be set free, and the fact that God provided that way for me to be set free at the cost of his own son, you would never do that for anybody. I wouldn't do that for any of you. I wouldn't give my sons for you. God gave his son for us so that his justice could be appeased when Jesus died on the cross on our behalf. Which means that as a follower of Jesus, our hope of walking in freedom here and now and one day ultimate freedom in heaven is not based on our ability to obey him, to keep our promises to him or to do a good job. It's totally based on his unchanging character and his willingness to keep his promises to us. And his promise to us is the same as the promise he made to Moses and the Hebrew people thousands of years ago when he said, I'll be with you. He said to Moses, I'll be with you when you go to Pharaoh. I'll be with your people when you journey out of, out of Egypt. I'll be with you as you go through the Red Sea. I'll be with you as you journey through the desert. I'll be with you as you enter the promised land. And that was all a foreshadowing of something even more amazing, that one day God himself would come down and be with his people and his name is Jesus. And one of his titles is Emmanuel, which literally means God is with us. So put your hope in him. Put your hope in him because he's done everything to prove his love to you. What do you mean? I, mean? I mean this. Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, or literally something to be leveraged against us, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what did that do for us? Set us free. It set us free. We started this series called Ransom with this verse out of Jesus' mouth, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to end this series with this verse out of Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Look right at me. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Quit running back to those old chains. It's for freedom that he came it's for freedom that he lived. It's for freedom that he loved. It's for freedom that he died. It's for freedom that he rose again. We're gonna end all this by taking communion together. We're gonna get some bread and we're gonna get some juice. And in that, what we do is we're simply remembering Jesus's body that was broken for us. We're remembering his blood that paid the price for us, that paid our ransom. So if this is true for you, you've embraced this freedom that, that he has set you free, then this is a time for us to experience this together. If you've never believed that before in your life, but you do now, then maybe this is the first time you experience communion with a lot of us, former slaves who've been set free and we're not there yet, but we're moving towards the promised land by his grace. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and, uh, and we're grateful. I'm so grateful for your love and your mercy and your patience. You have every right 
every right to get angry with us and to condemn us and to leave us locked up, but yet you set us free at the cost of your own son. I, can't, I cannot even fathom that, Father. Sacrificing your own son for us. That's unbelievable, yet true. So God, thank you for providing a way out. Thank you for providing a way out of our suffering and out of our slavery through your son, Jesus. And we want to celebrate him now. It's in his name we pray. Amen.